Welcome trailblazers and visionaries to the Forging Manufacturing Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Hampton. And I'm your co-host, Jason Flores. So in the last episode, uh, it was packed with so much good information. We did run a bit long. And now, Jason, I'm excited to get back into our discussion with futurist Jim Carroll. We left everyone hanging on the final top 10. Yeah. All right. Let's get into it. So, Jim, what are we talking about now? Post kind of as we're getting out of the COVID pandemic. Yeah, it, it's it's given where we were and given what we've learned, I, you know, I sort of tried to put some thought together to like, now what, now what happens? Where do we, uh, you know, where do we, where do we go next? And uh, look, I, I, I think the big issue is, I think we're going to see the emergence, for lack of a better phrase, let's call it the chief resilience officer. Uh, if you, if you read the, the manufacturing literature and it's not just manufacturer, it's every single industry. Resiliency is, is, I think the really big word that is out there, uh, supply chain management and broken supply chains. Look, when that ship got stuck in the Suez Canal, that freaked out a lot of executives uh, because we realized how weak um, you know, our, our supply chains were. So we've, we've got to build in more resilience in terms of product sourcing and in terms of process and in terms of manufacturing and uh, in terms of visibility. I, I, I think we're going to see this emerge as a, as a, as a really key figure going forward. Uh, look, obviously, we're talking about deglobalization strategies. Uh, I, th I think that, you know, what we learned through this is that while offshoring has presented us um, a lot of cost and price advantages demanded by the consumer, you know, who, who uh, you know, increasingly chooses on price, maybe we do need to do a little bit more to pull some production back into our countries, whether it's the US where you are, Canada where I am. And again, this is not an easy issue, um, you know, given uh, the skills issue, and it's not going to happen by building walls and tariffs and bridges and borders and stuff like that. Uh, it, it does take hard work, but I think we are seeing an increasing number of organizations having realistic discussions about how might we, you know, possibly accomplish uh, some de-globalization. Uh, with those two, obviously comes a new focus on redundancy and agility. We get another ship stuck in the Suez. How quickly can we get around it? How quickly can we source what we need? How quickly can we change our supply chain once again? How quickly can we redesign our product uh, you know, to deal with faster paced consumer uh, change? Uh, number four, what we were just speaking about is how do we take what we learned through COVID in terms of our ability to act so fast? And the you know, fact we didn't need committees anymore and you know we learn to operate at speed how do we bank that going forward I, I think you know I'm seeing a lot of more focus um, by organizations on how do we crystallize you know the very real uh, change that we went through so that we don't lose what we had how do we not go back to where we were before uh, I think I think you know obviously COVID is not going to go away and 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 there will be regions which will continue to have outbreaks um, partly due to vaccine, vaccination hesitancy and issues like that. And, and so I think we will continue to see more reliance on robotics and robots coming out of the cage. And how do we utilize technology to provide for that distancing uh, on the factory floor for this or for the next pandemic? Um, what I just alluded to is I think workplaces, manufacturing companies 
are now faced with a lot of really difficult decisions. Are we going to bring in a manufacturing workforce uh, staff who have refused to take a vaccine? We've seen this occur in the world of healthcare, right? And do you want to subject yourself to cost pressure and outbreak costs and potential plant closures because you're hiring people who haven't been vaccinated? And I think it extends beyond that. I'm, I'm working on a trend right now and I'm trying to do it very carefully because it's very, I think it's a very, this will become a very real political issue. There are certain regions who have higher rates of hesitancy, lower vaccination rates, Alabama, Mississippi, Missouri. Do I want to relocate a manufacturing facility into such a region when it puts me at higher volatility and cost risk? Probably not. I, I spoke over the years to a lot of um, organizations that made the big decisions on where to locate massive manufacturing plants. Two of them go by the names of uh, um, Cornet and the Industrial Asset Management Council. And these are the you know, senior executives for GM and Ford and uh, consumer product companies who make the big decisions on where to locate future factories. Are they going to want to place future factories in regions that aren't aligning to science? This is a huge issue. And, and, and I think we're going to see a lot more discussion around that. Can I stop you there first? So what, what yeah. are you hearing there? I, I, I'm, I'm hearing bubblings of concern. I'm beginning to hear people talking about that. I'm beginning to hear uh, people beginning to say, like, do we really want to subject ourselves to that risk? Yeah. We've got higher vaccination rates in the Northeast and the Northwest and California. And hey, maybe those are safer locations. Canada, look where I am. We're now number one in the world uh, in terms of first dose. And we're probably going to be number one in second dose, almost fully vaccinated population, 85% um, by the end of July. And I think this bodes really well for us in putting out a message to the world that, hey, look, we're a good place to locate your next facility. Um, I think this is going to be a huge issue. And I, I think it's only beginning to bubble up to the surface. But my prediction is this is going to be a big discussion within a year. Look at what happened with the Bruce Springsteen concert. We're only going to allow people in who've been vaccinated. It's all political. It's, 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 but it's not just political. I think it is a, it, I think it's a bigger issue than that. And I think, I think governments, you know, regions need to recognize the risk of continuing to go down this path. I just think it's amazing the conversations and decisions that are being made or had to, you know, having to be discussed now that we're not a year and a half, two years ago. So I just find that fascinating. And that that happens all the time. But this is, you know, crossing the lines of political, you know, economical. It's it's fascinating to me. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I did a lot of keynotes over the years on the, on the future of economic development. Uh, and what regions would manage to go ahead? And what were the attributes of those regions? So, I mean, I was already, you know, had in my mind. Um, for example, the, the, the state of Nevada had me in a few years ago. What do we need to do in Nevada to align ourselves to the faster future? And, you know, I was talking about things like, well, if we set up autonomous, you know, car testing tracks and if we, you know, set up the infrastructure that, uh, you know, for, for advanced solar and advanced microgrid connectivity, you know, if we align ourselves to the trends which are redefining entire industries, that gives us good economic opportunity. But now we're spinning into this new you know, potentially dangerous phase for regions. And this, I, I think this is going to be one of the biggest trends going forward. And I'm trying to address it very carefully because we know we're in a very complex, <laughs> complex world. Uh, you know, number seven, a, a need for better supply chain inside. I mean, we've got volatility and resiliency and, 
you know, ships getting stuck in the Suez Canal. Like we just, we need to continue relentlessly going down that path. I think we're going to see a lot more direct to consumer strategies. We like e-commerce. You know, look, in 1999, I wrote a book called Selling Online, How to Become a Successful E-Commerce Merchant. And a lot of people said, dumb idea. People are never going to buy stuff online. And look where we are now. I think a vast number of people have discovered the power, the convenience of purchasing direct. And I think this has a real impact on manufacturers because we have to accelerate a lot of direct-to-consumer strategies. And that means re-examining what we're doing with logistics, you know, with shipping and airlines and, and last mile delivery and pick and pack. And uh, just e-commerce has changed the world and manufacturing companies are a part of that for, you know, for a number of them. So how do we align to that? And uh, this one isn't really consumer or isn't really pandemic related, but uh, look, for 25 years, I've been saying we've been putting ourselves at increased security risk because we don't pay proper attention to IT security. Um, you, you, take a, you take a look at the typical board of directors. We've got somebody who's responsible for executive compensation, somebody responsible for HR, somebody for legal, somebody for audit. Um, you don't have an IT person on the board of directors of a Ford or a GM or a manufacturing major manufacturing company. And so the result is we get these you know, ransomware attacks and security holes. And if, if we're putting in IIoT, industrial internet of things into our factories and you know somebody can come along and and you know do a, a thing and demand crypto to let your factory floor run again this this not pandemic related but i think it's part of this whole trend of everything was becoming fast and connected before and now we're dealing with these these new and complex issues you know i'd even argue that that the pandemic has increase the risk there, right? Just because of the virtualization of a lot of businesses. I mean, we talked to some of these, you know, brick and mortar, you know, forever, everybody was in their facility in their manufacturing facility. And now you've got engineers working, you know, at home, IP, IP is sitting, you know, kind of outside of some of their firewalls, protected in some instances, less than it's ever been. So, you know, I, I'd say it's very much a real, you know, pandemic, you know, COVID related issue. Yeah, it actually, it actually is. That's a very good point. I mean, it used to be, we're trying to protect that PC in the office and somebody coming up and putting a USB stick into it and walking away with your product plans. And now that, that, you know, computer is sitting at home and uh, yeah, it, it, this is, this is potentially huge going forward. Yeah. I think your point number eight, uh, accelerating direct to consumer strategies um, you know, there was a large tool manufacturing company. This is pre-COVID. It was very concerned about the Amazon basic tools, right? They were afraid that those, those types of tools were going to take away a little bit of their business. Um, and that, you know, we've seen that accelerate throughout the pandemic. And even now you're still seeing empty shelves um, in, in your Home Depots or Lowe's stores uh, too. Um, so that, that to me is a really, really powerful point and something that, that manufacturers need to, to think about and to address. Well, and it's, it's, it's also part of this whole trend, another trend I was talking about pre-pandemic, the accelerating bar of expectations. Look, as a consumer, we all expect every retailer we interact with to operate at the same level of professionalism as Amazon. Like that bar is, is there and it keeps getting higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And the same holds true for a manufacturer when they're, when they're impacted by direct to consumer. So if you're gonna sell stuff online, you've got to be equally as sophisticated as what Amazon gets. Where's my package? You know, real-time shipping updates, uh, you know, two-day delivery versus the cost for, you know, 10-day delivery. I mean, it's just, uh, business is, is 
it was complex before the pandemic, and now it's even way more complex. The Forging Manufacturing Podcast is brought to you by Applied Software. With solutions for the modern project, Applied Software is on a mission to transform industries by empowering clients and championing innovation with real-world expert consultants. Their comprehensive array of solutions for AEC, MEP, and manufacturing has a singular focus of helping you achieve higher performance. With software, training, support, consulting, and custom development, Applied Software has you covered. Visit asti.com and let them know we sent you. Yeah, you know, so I'm an optimist. And so when I, I we get done hearing these 30 things from you, and I, I think it's, it's interesting that I look at it as opportunity, right? Everything, if, if you run and hide from it, you, you should be scared, right? You're right. All of these things are real, but these are our opportunities. And, and that's where, if we go back to the other the point, it's where the small new competitors are coming out the small can compete with the large. I think a lot of this has just shined a light on the opportunities and for those to be able to think fast, scale big, you know, it, it's just, and to me, it, it, it makes me uh, feel, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but it makes me feel hopeful for, for a lot of those that have kind of struggled and made it through the pandemic. Yeah, you know, look, a guy like me is I'm I'm a walking, um, you know, phrase machine. And one of the one of the my favorite phrases I would use on stage was I'll I'll give you two, which are sort of opportunity based. The first one is some people see the future and see a threat. Innovators see the same future and see an opportunity, right? So it's all about how you view the future. And look, I I knew when I got on stage, there was like one third of the audience that did not like me. And I used to read this, you know, the evaluations and, you know, my God, am I, you know, what am I doing up there? What I came to realize was that they would not like me regardless of what I said, because they do not want to align to the future. They don't like the future. The future is a threat. The future is a problem. The future is a challenge. And I would try to carefully address that by putting up a, a picture from a movie when the Jetsons met the Flintstones and explaining the look, uh, we're all going into the world of the Jetsons, but we got a bunch of Flintstones around and that's our challenge. That's our leadership challenge today. The other, the other phrase I used a lot, and I think this really captures the essence of our world and it, you got to take it a, a, as an opportunity. It's we're, we're now in a situation in which companies that do not yet exist will build products not yet conceived using materials not yet invented, with methodologies not yet in existence, selling these unknown products to consumers who don't yet know that they want and need those products. I, you, can, you can take that as a scary comment, and it is kind of scary, or you can look at it and go, wow, uh, like there's nothing but opportunity in that, in that phrase, and there is, because you know, we don't know exactly where we're going. We're making great time. And it's just, I, I'm, I'm an optimist always on this stuff. I, I couldn't walk out on stage and say, guess what? Your future sucks. Uh, I wouldn't get a lot of repeat business. I, I, would, I would be relentless on the optimism because I, I think there's just so much potential. And, and it goes to your key point for a small organization today. You have unprecedented opportunity to compete and be a player in, in, in ways that never existed before. That's so true. And, you know, these, these companies with that laggard mindset, they just have to change that mindset, right? In order to succeed in the future. Or they disappear. So 
previous economic uh, downturns or periods of economic uncertainty. I, I dug out this study from GE years ago, and they, they looked at what organizations did during periods of economic uncertainty. So the downturn of 2008 and the dot-com bust 2001 and the 97 recession, the 93 recession, they found that 60% of organizations sort of muddled their way through. They didn't really capitalize on what they learned. They didn't make any big decisions. 30% didn't make it. They disappeared. They went bankrupt. They were bought out. 10% became breakthrough performers because they, 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 they thought big and bold and they pursued big ideas. And you, you want to be a part of the, that 10% right now because there's so much opportunity, uh, you know, that, that, that comes with us. Yeah. Is it always a top-down thing from your perspective? I mean, does that always start at the very top or is it kind of, is it just... I mean, I guess maybe it's it's too common sense that everybody has to be involved with it. But I mean, those organizations that you've seen really take the opportunity and run with it. I mean, does that have to start from the top? I think the the, the tone is uh, set at the top. I mean, it's with one um, CEO group, um, it was like a month after the market melted down in 2008. And, you know, he got out to his team of 500 executives and he said, look, we've got three choices. Number one, we can panic. Uh, number two, we can do nothing. Or number three, we can innovate like crazy to get through this thing. And I remember sitting out in the audience and I was about to go on stage to talk to them. And I was like, whoa, that's it right there. And I, uh, I, I stole the phrase and I used that incessantly over and over. I, you know, so I think it's, it's, it's set from the tone at the top. But I think there's also a lot of power. I call it generational collaboration. Like that Amstead Rail story of the, you know, those young engineers in the Google room. You know, and then I found a company, Bison Trucking, up in, in Winnipeg, uh, um, Canada, uh, you know, who had a Google room of, you know, young engineers working with leading edge trucking technology. And then I discovered in another company, uh, generational collaboration, because, I, you know, I think I'm 62, us older folks, you know, sometimes don't understand the full range of the potential of what's possible in this new technology driven digital world. But if we can harness the, you know, the insight of that younger generation, we've got, you know, some sort of secret sauce. Yeah, the idea of incubation has become so big. And uh, yeah, those that, that allow those to, to incubate ideas or methodologies and you know, tend to, to get something out of it, um, you know, or find out what they shouldn't be doing. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, well, Jim, I can't thank you enough uh, for joining our podcast and, um, is there anything that you, any you know, words of wisdom, you've given us so many, so, and I know you've probably got more that you've, you've held back, but is there anything that you'd like to leave us with, leave the audience with today? Um, as yeah, we I, actually, I actually filmed this uh, clip yeah, a thanks, couple Jim. of weeks ago and, and, and it sort of summarizes, I think some of the, some of the thoughts of, you know, what we need to do and what we're faced with as we go forward. So if I, if I, you know, play that out to close and then I'll come back to, uh, you know, to, to quickly say goodbye, but I think there's some good insight here uh, into what we really need to think about because I, what I'm really identifying, I, what I've done is I, I call it the acceleration gap. I used to explain that the future belonged to those who are fast and there was this gap between our speed and the speed of change. The pandemic has made the gap bigger. And if you can't bridge the acceleration gap, you're increasingly going to fall behind. So let me let me play this and I'll, I'll be back in uh, just under four minutes. What is real is that we are running into a world of faster change with a massive boat anchor holding us back from doing what we need to do to align to this faster future. 
we're putting in place these barriers. We're hiding behind walls in terms of our ability to keep up. And that's what we need to bridge with the gap. What I'm doing is, and I'm now putting in perspective for organizations who previously were dealing with the issue of fast-paced change, what they now need to do to bridge the gap. They need to understand how the gap is increasing, where it's increasing, the impact that has upon what they can do as they go forward into the future and what they can accomplish by managing to bridge the gap. I want you to think about what the winners through the pandemic have managed to accomplish in terms of their strategy, in terms of their skills, in terms of their capabilities. What happened to a lot of organizations is they had a better appreciation for the impact of digital transformation. My running joke has been that who led your digital transformation, your CEO, your CIO, your CTO? No, it was COVID-19. Organizations now understand the impact of digital transformation. And if you aren't one of them, that's the type of gap that you were faced with. Think about what happened during the last year as we increasingly moved fast. Organizations banished and eliminated committees. They banished and eliminated all the things which provided us for slow moving structure in a world that was fast. Uh, they were in a situation in which they learned how to accelerate external partnerships. If we don't have the right skills at the right time for the right purpose, for the right situation, let's go get those skills. And what this has done, it, it has forever transformed their understanding of what they can accomplish in terms of taking on fast-paced issues. These are your new competitors. It provided organizations with a new ability um, to implement a very fast change to process, whether it's manufacturing process or the process of getting things done or the process of working something through their bureaucracy. It helped them understand that they can work in new and different ways. Uh, really what it taught them is how do we assemble fast, nimble teams. The world of Zoom conference calls led to a situation in which fast-moving organizations realized that they could bring together a fast-moving team in an instant and take on new challenges, new situations, new complexities, and manage those issues extremely quickly. It led them to a situation in which they were dealing with faster business model disruption. There was no time to study the impact of the disruptive trends around them. They simply had to deal with the reality of what was occurring. It led them to a situation in which they saw the benefit of faster decision-making. They cut through the bureaucracy. They cut through the slow-moving process, which held them back from pursuing a fast-paced future. Uh, it led them to a situation in which they saw the impact of a flatter structure. We, we could do so many things by eliminating the layers which were in place and this become a, became a part of our ability to move quickly. Uh, they learned something new about how to deploy at speed. They always understood that the future belonged to those who were fast and they got a sudden new appreciation of what that truthfully meant. These are staggering trends. It accelerated their ability in terms of product innovation. Uh, it led to a situation in which it saw the death of management by PowerPoint, which is probably one of the few good things to come out of the global pandemic because CEOs and leaders realized uh, we didn't have time to study these things to death. We didn't have time to put together pretty PowerPoint decks. We simply needed to get things done and we need to do it now. Organizations have learned something new about how to test and manage uh, their supply chain resilience, such that resilience, uh, managing volatility, has become a core focus going forward. Uh, they learned to implement an extremely fast change to process. This is the gap that you're faced with. If you haven't done these things, if you haven't learned these lessons, 
You're now in a situation in which previously the future belonged to those who were faster. The future now belongs to those who are faster. And you need to bridge the gap. And how you do that is you quantify the gap, you understand the trends in your industry. Where is change occurring faster than ever before? What are the trends that are now are redefining your future? Where do your weaknesses exist? Where do you have disruptive thinking barriers? Where do you have innovation barriers? And what are the strategies and action plans you need to pursue to deal with this reality? And that's what I'm covering in this keynote. I mean, that's that's it right now. The future used to belong to those who are fast. It now belongs to those who are faster. So I, you know, I hear folks saying like, we're, you know, thank gosh, we're, you know, finally going back to where we were. We're not going back to where we were. Uh, we're going now to where we're going to be next. And it's going to be faster. There's going to be this acceleration gap. And it, it's a whole new ball game. And it really comes back to your key point. It's all about opportunity. It is. Well, thank you again. And it's almost like you knew what our upcoming episode was going to be about next and digital transformation. And that's a, a topic that I'm sure, Jim, you could probably talk on for days on end. Um, and, and that's what we as a business, that's that's where we're focusing on with our manufacturing customers is enabling that. And I'll say if anybody that's listening hasn't already gone to check out jimcarroll.com, you know, get a hold of the book, check out all the content that's up on the website that you don't even have to pay for. Um, it, it's phenomenal. And I really look forward to the new new book coming out. When when is that? Uh, so my wife is uh, working on the final edit today. And again, this is a manufacturing story. So um, uh, the cover will be finalized over in India within the week. And it actually goes up on a subsidiary of Amazon. Uh, probably about two weeks, it'll be live on Amazon. And it's a print-on-demand product, right? All that matters with the book today is that uh, you can buy it on Amazon and it goes to a plant, I think, in uh, Charleston, uh, North Carolina, and somebody buys a copy and it's printed. One copy is printed. I mean, that's the world of manufacturing right there. So on demand. it might actually be out in uh, two weeks and I just finished writing it. So it, it's a crazy world we find ourselves in. Listen, thanks for having me. And I'm spending a lot of time golfing these days. And, uh, you know, the guys I golf with, uh, they know I talk a lot. They know I like to talk a lot. Maybe they got a little bit sick of me. So it's nice to, you know, get into a forum where we can talk about uh, stuff where I'm not driving my golf buddies nuts. Yeah, well, the pleasure was all ours. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Right. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us on this episode of Forging Manufacturing. We hope you gained some valuable insights. And we hope you tune in to our next episode for even more. You know, uh, since this is our first episode, Dave, why don't you do something special for our listeners? Yeah, come on, you can give something away. Yeah, I'd like it. Uh, I think we shall. Uh, so we'll do this. Uh, for the first 10 listeners who like, comment, and follow Forging Manufacturing, this podcast, on LinkedIn, we'll give away a cop uh, copy of Jim Carroll's book, Think Big, Start Small, Scale Fast. Oh, wow. I was thinking a cup of coffee, but that sounds great. We'll see you all next time. Forging Manufacturing is directed and produced by Dave Hampton and Jason Flores. Edited and produced by Eric Daniel. Forging Manufacturing is an applied software production. Copyright Applied Software 2021.